I can what? You can actually see yourself when you're, so you can see how, oh, okay. where the parameters are, and then you can just unmute. You, you haven't joined the audio, and you don't need to. Okay. okay. That's your mic. Perfect. All right. And then when I tell you to unmute. Good evening. Hi, Ellen. All right. So when, when we're ready to get started, just click the unmute button. Okay, when are we starting? When she's ready? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yalla. So yeah, and you can see yourself. I can even move her. Do you want me to move closer? Move me closer? Yeah. Yeah, you can, because it's a little too far, right? Yeah. I'm going to try and st stay here with the... No, no, just, uh, you can move it closer. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it's fine. Was it? She's one of my favorites. Yeah. Pretty powerful. We all do. We all do. You're welcome. To put the yeah you're here look at it so you you need to uh, unmute Joining us for the first time tonight, 
This study series is hosted by the St. Ephraim's Maronite Young Adult Group. We are um, parishioners of St. Ephraim's or from wherever that come together every week or so to grow closer in our relationship with each other and with God. Last weekend, um, we had our MYA West Regional Conference and it was a pretty awesome success. Huge shout out to Mark and Joe. I don't know where they went, but they went somewhere. And a huge shout out to my team who made it phenomenal. to the YMCA Camp Surf for a weekend of fun things, because the surf camp has surfing and rock climbing, but also lots of religious and spiritually edifying things. Tessa, if you can tab that slide for me. Those are just some of the pictures. This is our San Diego young adult group right here and a few others spread throughout. Um, so it was really awesome. And thank you to all the parents who helped put the lunches together afterwards on Sunday. That was really awesome too. Now, without further ado, uh, for those of you who might not be familiar with him, my dad has taught scripture for ever since I can remember. Uh, he taught here at St. Ephraim's for about 15 years or so before deciding to go into retirement, which I pulled him out of to bring together the church during this time of life. Uh, he will take us away through purgatory, and our final meeting will be next Wednesday at 7.30 when we come into the topic of heaven. With that, Dad? Thank you. Thanks, Fanon. Uh, Tessie, when you're ready. Uh, go back up, please. To the top, the title, if you don't mind. I'm hearing myself, by the way. It's okay? All right. Very good. So we are going to tonight talk about purgatory, the topic of purgatory. And before I get into the agenda, uh, I need to figure out how that thing moves. Oh, this way. I have to slide. Okay. Uh, again, I would like to begin by thanking Father Tufi. He's our pastor and he's sitting in the back. So huge shout out for Father Tufi. Without him, none of that would be possible. And obviously to uh, my daughter Hanan and uh, the MYA team. And we would like to welcome you here for this uh, talk. Um, we covered judgment and hell, and now we're covering purgatory in heaven. This is a typical Lenten retreat where we talk about the four last things. Um, death, obviously, being one of them, but then you have judgment, hell, purgatory, and heaven. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, which is purgatory. So before we get into the topic... I do want to start by um, reminding all of you of a few things that the saints have said. Here are two of my favorite saints, St. Teresa of Avila, Doctor of the Church, St. Teresa, Little Child Jesus, Doctor of the Church. Let nothing disturb you. I'm going to repeat that. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God, whoever has God, lacks nothing. God alone suffices. 
Those are extraordinary word of comfort. Can you hear me, by the way, or do I, should I raise my voice? Okay. Those are extraordinary word of comfort from a great saint. And here's St. Teresa of the Little Child Jesus. O oh my God, I offer thee all my actions of this day for the intentions and for the glory of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. You notice how a saint is always oriented to loving Jesus. I've always said in the scriptures, a saint is worried about God. Not the word, not the world, not what's going on out there. Worried only about God. Loving God and everything else follows. I desire to, sanctif to sanctify every beat of my heart, my every thought, my simplest works, by uniting them to its infinite merits, and I wish to make reparation for my sins by casting them into the furnace of its merciful love. So she wants to sanctify, and she wants to make reparation. And why? Because she loves God. That's it. That's what we all have to learn to do. Oh my God, I ask of thee for myself and for those whom I hold dear, the grace to fulfill perfectly thy holy will, to accept for love of thee the joys and sorrows of this passing life, so that we may one day be united together in heaven for all eternity. That's the whole plan of our life, right there. I think these are very consoling words and they're worth meditating. No matter what difficulty you have, no matter what challenge you have, no matter what pain you're going through, no matter whether you're facing death, death of loved ones or your own, this world is passing away. But God, love always, God's love always endure forever and ever. And then next week when we talk about heaven, I'm, I hope to give you a glimpse of what that means. All right, please stand and let's begin with a prayer. This is taken from the prayer of St. Teresa of Calcutta in very simple words. So please do pray with me if you can see the words. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, you have given us a model of life in the Holy Family of Nazareth. Help us, O loving Father, to make our family another Nazareth where love, peace, and joy reign. May it be deeply contemplative, intensely Eucharistic, and vibrant with joy. Help us to stay together in joy and sorrow through family prayer. Teach us to see Jesus in the members of our family, especially in their distressing disguise. May the Eucharistic heart of Jesus make our hearts meek and humble like His, and help us to carry out our family duties in a holy way. May we love one another as God loves each one of us more and more each day and forgive each other's faults as you forgive our sins. Help us, O loving Father, to take whatever you give and to give whatever you take with a big smile. Help us, O Holy Father, to make our families one heart full of love in the heart of Jesus through Mary. Immaculate heart of Mary, cause of our joy, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Holy garden angels, be always with us, guide and protect us, amen.
In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. We're going to begin with defining purgatory. What is it exactly? Then we're going to look at the earliest witness and church fathers. Then we'll move into Scripture to show you where you find purgatory in Scripture. We'll deal with some of the objections to purgatory. And then finally, we're going to spend time on talking about how do we avoid purgatory and go straight to heaven. That should be our objective. Our objective in this life, the first thought that should come, that we should think about when we wake up, and the last thought we should think about when we go to sleep, am I going to heaven? That's it. When I wake up in the morning, Lord, what must I do today to go to heaven? And when I go to sleep, Lord, forgive all the sins I've committed. I really, truly want to go to heaven. Going to heaven is the objective. Above all else, beyond all else. So, what is purgatory? Purgatory is a place of temporal punishment. By the way, if you have questions, and I'm sure you will have questions, we would ask you to keep them till the end where we're going to go through a Q&A session. Why? Why is there such a place? As a just reparation for forgiven sin. Okay? So it is a temporal punishment as a reparation for sins we have committed. Sins that have been forgiven. Now here is the first hiccup for most of us. We think that when we are forgiven, we can go free and clear. But that's not true in our lives. Nobody acts like that. If your neighbor broke your window by accident and the neighbor is really sorry that he broke your window by accident and he's repentant, you forgive your neighbor, yes? Let's assume this window is a big window bay and it costs $3,000. Are you going to pay for it to fix it? You will? No. He has to pay for it to fix it. No, he broke it for you. Yes, we're on the same page, right? Good. Right? He broke the window. He says he's sorry. You forgive him. But you'd expect him to pay for it to be fixed. Yes? Why should it be any different with God? Think about that. Somehow we assume with God it has to be different. We'll talk about that more. Who? Who get to go to purgatory? Those who die with no mortal sin on their soul and who are not entirely free from venial faults. So purgatory is not a place of reparation for mortal sin. Like we learned last, last time, if someone dies, if they die, they're dead, and had mortal sin on their soul, they go to hell. That is a dogma, and it's defeated. It's the highest form of the dogma. 
if you die, not if you're dying, if you die, you're dead with a mortal sin on your soul, you go to hell. So this is not for people with mortal sin on their souls. This is for people with venial sins that have been forgiven, but there needs to be payment made for them. When, immediately after personal judgment, which happens right after death, and for a duration set by God. Now, I told you during this period, all the way up to heaven, I am willfully intent on scaring you. And I'm going to do it now. In Fatima, there were three seers. Lucia, Jacinta, Jacinta, Francesco. Francesco and Jacinta, right? I got at least two of them right. Okay. Francesca and Jacinta were like 10 or 8 or 9 or something like that. You with me? And when Our Lady appeared to them, they asked her about the fate of a friend of theirs, 10 years old. They wanted to know where she was. And Our Lady said, she's in purgatory and she's going to stay there until the end of time. 10 year old. Now, I'd like to add to what Our Lady said, unless somebody prays and offers sacrifice for her. I'm, I'm hoping it wasn't an absolute statement, but it was, you need to pray and sacrifice for her, and then she can get out sooner. But she was 10 years old. What does that tell you? Fundamentally, one of our biggest problems, we just don't take God seriously. We assume going to heaven is easy. You've heard me say that before. Going to Harvard, now that is difficult. But heaven, of course, everybody goes to heaven. It's just a, it's a piece of cake. But there's nothing in the scripture that says that. Okay. Where, on the way to heaven, purgatory is a one-way road to heaven and only to heaven. Okay? So if you're in purgatory, rejoice. You're going to heaven. There is no, oh, I might go to hell. No, it's over. The decision is made here. Your fate is sealed here. Heaven or hell. And if it's heaven, you might have to go to jail until you pay 200 and get out or whatever the thing is at Monopoly. I forgot now. But that's the idea. All right. The teaching of the church on the topic, it's a dogma the souls of the just, which in the moment of death are burdened with venial sin or temporal punishment due to sins, enter purgatory. And again, it's defide, it's the highest form of dogma. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1030. All who die in God's grace and friendship. In God's grace and friendship but still imperfectly purified and indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Okay? So remember this. I'll say that again. Good people, good people go to hell. That's where good people go. 
because when the rich man came to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. So anybody calling himself good is in trouble. Good people go to hell. Holy souls go to purgatory. Saints go to heaven. Now, my words, I'm hoping, will scare you so you start praying, but not to discourage you. Because at the end of the day, neither you nor I, no matter what we do, could go to heaven. We cannot do that. It takes the saving cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just as with one word to St. Dismas on the cross, who was a thief and a criminal, one word of Jesus. That guy said one thing. Jesus, remember when you, came, when you enter into your kingdom. One word, and Jesus said, you're with me in paradise. Canonize him into heaven. That's what Jesus can do. So, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? Do you talk to him? Do you pray to him? Are you trying to do what he asks us to do? Do you love your neighbor? Do you love the people around you? Are you trying to be kind? Are you trying to be forgiving? Are you doing something to say to Jesus, I love you? Do you take that seriously? If not, what do you expect? Like I told you a few weeks ago, it'd be like somebody, like me, saying, hey, I'm going to become a Marine. But I'm going to go to Camp Pendleton one hour a week. That's it. And half of the hour, I'm going to be distracted. And I will become a Marine. Anybody's going to take me seriously? What are my chances of becoming a Marine? Zero, right? How come for things earthly, we have common sense to tell us what the result is? But we come to heaven, we become all garbled. Why? No, it's not that it is unknown. It's just that the flesh, the devil, and the world conspire against us. That's it. And we neglect the things that matter. It'd be like students at school who decide half an hour before the final exam to start studying. What do you think their chances of success is? Do you need a crystal ball to find that out? Right? 1%. It's the same thing. We have to apply ourselves and trust in the Lord. It's not about what I do, it's about what He does to me. But I have to ask Him. That's about it. I have to trust that no matter how, what my failings are, no matter what my sins are, no matter how terrible my situation is, like St. Dismas, if I turn to Him in love, He will turn to me in love. And He is all-saving. He came to save all. God wills for no one to go to hell. All right. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The tradition of the church, by reference to certain texts of Scripture, speaks of a cleansing fire. So these texts should give you an, an inkling as to why the word purgatory does not appear in Scripture, because purgatory is cleansing. But in the scripture, you will see there, are, there is a cleansing fire and there is purification. Those words are used. 
Right? Incidentally, the doctrine of purgatory is distinctly Catholic. The Protestants do not believe in it. And I think at least since the Reformation, the Orthodox Church does not believe in purgatory. Okay? And I'll show you the text in scriptures, and it's gonna, you're going to wonder how you can now believe in, 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 in purgatory. So, um, yeah, let me go through some of what the church fathers say. And I've put the dates to give you an idea how ancient this is. Tertullian. In short, if we understand that prison, that prison of which the gospel speaks to be Hades, and if we interpret the last farthing to be the light offense, which is to be expiated there before the resurrection, no one will doubt that the soul undergoes some punishments, there you go, in Hades, without prejudice to the fullness of the resurrection, after which recompense will be made through the flesh also. No one doubts. He's writing it as a matter of fact, 155, between 155 to 250 AD. No one doubts. It's a prison. It's temporary. You will go out after punishment and purification. To tune in again, we offer sacrifices for the dead on their birthday anniversaries. Why do we offer sacrifices for the dead? Why do we offer masses? It's precisely because we're hoping that they're either in heaven, in which cases the prayers will be redirected somewhere else, or they're in purgatory, in which case we can help them get out of there faster. Tertullian, a woman after the death of her husband, prays for his soul and asks that he may, while waiting, find rest and that he may share in the first resurrection. Again, prayer for the dead is a pretty ancient custom in a church. The Acts of Paul and Tecla, AD 160. And after the exhibition, Tryphenia again received her, Tecla, for her daughter, Falconilla, had died and said to her in a dream. So the daughter in a dream had said to her, Mother, you shall have this stranger, Tecla, in my place, in order that she may pray concerning me and that I may be transferred to the place of the righteous. This is A.D. 160. So you can see the tradition of the church is anchored in the earliest times of Christianity where the idea of purgatory was already well established. It's not a new invention. We did not create it. We're just preserving the deposit of the faith. The martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity, A.D. 202. That very night, this was shown to me in a vision. Perpetua saw Dinocrates going out from a gloomy place where also there were several others, and he was parched and very thirsty, with a filthy countenance and pallid color, and the wound on his face which he had when he died. This Dinocrates had been my brother after the flesh, seven years of age, who died miserably with disease. For him I had made my prayer, and between him and me there was a large interval, so that neither of us could approach to the other. And I knew that my brother was in suffering, but I trusted that my prayer would bring help to his suffering. I made my prayer for my brother day and night, groaning and weeping that he might be granted to me. Then on the day on which we remained in fetters, this was shown to me, I saw that the place which I had formerly observed to be in gloom was now bright, and in Ocratus, with a clean body, well-clad, was finding refreshment. And he went away from the water to play joyously after the manner of children, and I awoke. Then I understood that he was translated from the place of punishment, purgatory. Again, 202 A.D. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, 
Then we make mention also of those who have fallen asleep, first the patriarchs, prophets, apostles, and martyrs, that through their prayers and supplications, God would receive our petitions. Next, we make mention also of the holy fathers and bishops who have already fallen asleep, and to put it simply, of all among us who have already fallen asleep, for we believe that it will be of great benefit to the souls of those for whom the petition is carried up while this holy and most holy sacrifice is laid out. By the way, those who go to the, those who, who go, who attend the Maronite liturgy, these words should be very familiar to you. And I think the Chaldean probably have similar wordings, and you can see how ancient this is, this habit to praying for all these people. So, again, um, if you have folks who passed away, either recently or sometime prior, please, in, in the Eastern tradition, we have the 40 day after, right, when you offer Mass. Please, don't forget them. Okay, it's the most cruel thing not to pray for your dead. You and I don't know when they go from purgatory to heaven. We don't know that. So don't forget them. Keep offering masses on their behalf. It's a great act of charity to offer masses for the deceased, especially, especially for those for whom there is no one to pray. Okay? Don't just, boom, forget about them. Because they probably are stuck there. You can help them. They can't help themselves. Okay. Yeah. St. Cyril of Jerusalem. That was about the same, the same time. I wish to persuade you by an illustration. For I know that there are many who are saying this. If a soul departs this world with sins, what does it profit it to be remembered with prayers? Why should we pray for the dead? Well, if a king were to banish certain persons who had offended him and those intervening for them were to plate a crown and offer it to him on behalf of the ones who were being punished, would he not grant a remission of their penalties? In the same way, we too offer prayers to him for those who have fallen asleep, though they be sinners. We do not plate a crown, but offer up Christ who has been sacrificed for our sins and we thereby propitiate propitiated the benevolent God for them as well as for ourselves. Which is why there ought to be always intentions in masses. Because the, suffer, the, the sacrifice of Christ is most powerful. St. Basil the Great, 330 AD, 379 AD. I think that the noble athletes of God who have wrestled all their lives with the invisible enemies after they had escaped all of their persecutions and have come to the end of life are examined by the prince of this world there is this tradition, small t, that at the time of personal judgment, the accuser, the one who's accusing us, would be the devil himself. Come to remind God of all of our sins. That's why he's expressing this here as the prince of this world. Um, and if they are found to have any wounds for their, from their wrestling, any stains or effects of, of sun, they are detained if, however, they are found unwounded and without stain, they are as unconquered, brought by Christ into their rest. That detained is purgatory. St. Gregory of Nyssa, same, same time, 335 AD, 394. If a man in this present life has inclined to the irrational pressure of the passions, then when after his departure out of the body, he finds that he is not able to partake of divinity until he has been purged of the filthy contagion in his soul by the purifying fire. Purifying, purgatio, 
That's the word in Latin, to purify. That's what purgatory means. You see it right here. St. Augustine of Hippo, 355 AD, 430 AD. Lord, rebuke me not in your indignation, nor correct me in your anger. This is from the Psalms. In this life, may you cleanse me and make me such that I have no need of the corrective fire, which is for those who are saved, but as if by fire. For it is said, he shall be saved, but as if by fire. And because it is said, he shall be saved, little is thought of that fire. Yet plainly, though, we be saved by fire, that fire will be more severe than anything a man can suffer in his life. This is, a, again, a constant tradition in the Catholic Church, small t, that the greatest suffering in this life is less than the lightest suffering in purgatory. And the way I will explain it to you very briefly is the same thing if you basically take one of your teeth, tooth, tooth, teeth, one of them, anyway, and you pluck it out, leaving the nerve. The tooth is a protective layer around the nerve. You take it out, now the nerve is raw. Can you imagine the pain you can go through? Well, think now a little bit of the body as that tooth around the soul. So you take that body away, and the soul, like this nerve, is fully exposed. That's why the pains in purgatory, that's one of the reasons, there's another reason, which is, I'll get into later. But fundamentally, work out your salvation right here. That's the bottom line. Okay. The last one, St. John Chrysostom. You can see how many of the fathers and doctors of the church speak in favor of purgatory. If, if Job's sons were purified by the father's sacrifice, Job 1.5, why would we doubt that our offerings for the dead bring them some consolation? Let us not hesitate to help those who have died and to offer our prayers for them. Okay. Now, purgatory in Scripture. We start with 2 Maccabees, 12, 39, 48. So the book of Maccabees is in the Catholic Bible. It's in the Orthodox Bible. It's not in a Protestant Bible. The reason why Luther took it out was precisely because of that passage. But even if, if, it's, even if you do not recognize Maccabees as an inspired book, you should at least recognize it as indicative of the belief of the Jews right around Jesus' time. On the next day, as by that time it had, it had become necessary, Judas and his men went to take up the bodies of the fallen. There was a war, and there were some of their brethren who had died, and to bring them back to lie with their kinsmen in the sepulchres of their fathers. Then, under the tunic of every one of the dead, they found sacred tokens of the idols of Jamnia, which the law forbids the Jews to wear. And it became clear to all that this was why these men had fallen. So they all blessed the ways of the Lord, the righteous judge, who reveals the things that are hidden. And they turned to prayer, beseeching that the sin which had been committed might be wholly blotted out. And the noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their, their own eyes what had happened because of the sin of those who had fallen. He also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver, and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering, 
which is prescribed by the law in uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. So the belief in a place of purification goes all the way back to the Jews and is carried forward through Christ and St. Paul and the apostles into the church. Again, this is not some mere novelty that the Catholic Church came up with so that it can collect money. Matthew 12, 24, 32. Well, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? I'm reading all this to make you understand the context. Jesus is not talking about this world. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He is talking about the kingdom of God. Okay? Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Okay. Now notice the next two verses. Therefore I shall tell you, every sin and blasphemy which will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, and here we go, either in this age or the age to come. Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God. This age is the kingdom of God on earth. The age to come is after death. What does it mean to be forgiven after death? It's precisely that there is payment to be made which is forgiven. He's not talking about hell. You with me? Those who are in hell, it's over. No forgiveness. Those who are in heaven don't need forgiveness. Who's this applying to? You gotta have, if you, if you are going to be truthful to the text and led by logic, you have to have a place that is neither hell nor heaven where people can be forgiven. You can see how the whole um, thrust of purgatory comes from the words of our Lord and in, in, uh, in, the, in the Gospels and then from St. Uh, Paul in a minute. Matthew 5, 20, 26. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right. So there's a whole text here about the moral behavior of people and how they should, be, they should not say certain things. I'm not going to go through all of this. But, verse 25. Make friends quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard 
and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out till you have paid the last penny. We're not talking dollars. We're not talking hundreds of dollars. Pennies. So there again, you are in a place, which is a prison, and you're going to get out. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out till you have paid the last penny. And you have to pay pennies. And you will get out. Can't be hell. There is no getting out. Can't be heaven. There's nothing for you to pay in heaven. Then again, you need a place where this applies. Where you pay for what you have done. Purgatory. 1 Corinthians 3, 10, 15. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and another man is building upon it. Let each man take care how he builds upon it. For no other foundation can, be, can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become manifest for the day, that's the day of judgment, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed with fire. Here we go again. Purification, fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. So the idea being that you examine your works. Your works are your moral conduct, the virtues that you have developed in your life, and then their fruits, which is the actions towards your brothers and sisters. And if these are gold, silver, precious stone, those things are not burned by fire. But if they're wood, hay, straw, they're burned by fire. And if that's the case, you suffer loss, but you're saved. So again, it cannot be hell, because in hell you're not going to be saved. can't be heaven, because in heaven there is no loss to suffer. Where, what is it? Scripture logically requires purgatory, if you are to understand those texts, the text. And I'll show you some of the objections and why they really don't stand. Just logically, they don't stand. Here we go. I'm going to move down to objections to purgatory. The text, the objection, and the answer. The Maccabees, the one we just read about the Maccabees offering a sin offering for the dead. The objection. The men killed carried sacred tokens of Jamnia, which is I read to you. That was their problem. So if they are carrying sacred tokens of Jamnia, Jamnia is a goddess, and they're carrying sacred tokens to this goddess or god. I think it's a goddess. Not sure. Don't quote me on this. But anyway, it's an idol. And they're carrying sacred tokens of this idol. So the objection is, that is idolatry, and we know idolatry is a mortal sin. So you cannot be talking about venial sin. You're with me? Because remember, purgatory is about punishment due to venial sin, not mortal sin. So you can't use this text, the objection goes, to apply it to purgatory. Well, that's because the 
the, the folks who are making this objection don't understand what a sacred token to Jamnia is. It's actually like baseball cards. So it really falls more into superstition than it does into idolatry. And in that case, it's more accounted like a venial sin than it is a moral sin. All right, Matthew 5, make friends with your accuser. The answer is, this is, this is about this life exclu exclusively, since you have to make friends with your accuser. Meaning that if you have an issue with your brother, and your brother is accusing you, you have to make friends with him. It has nothing to do with heaven or hell or purgatory. Problem is, these verses are in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, where our Lord teaches about heaven, verse 20, hell, 29 through 30, mortal sin, verse 22, venial sin, verse 19, while talking about the kingdom of heaven. That's the overall context of the text. That's what he's talking about. Additionally, the Greek word for prison that is used here is phulake, the same word used by St. Peter in 1 Peter 3.19 to describe the holding place into which Jesus descended after his death to liberate the detained spirits of the Old Testament. So the, when Jesus says, you will go into prison, he uses the, the text uses the exact same word that St. Peter uses to refer to Hades. Not a common prison. So the context is about the kingdom of heaven. The prison is about the underworld. How do you then take that and apply it to say it's about your... Right? And the funny thing, that's the only text where that objection is being made. Like when you read the other texts in the scriptures, everybody would agree it's about the parables, right? The, the teachings of Christ is about the kingdom of heaven. But when you come to here, conveniently, no, it isn't. I'll leave it at that. Oh, second objection. It's not purgatory. It's about the limbo of the fathers. Remember, the limbo of the fathers is that holding place in Hades where all the righteous from the, and just from the Old Testament waited for Christ to open the gates of heaven so that it can be ushered in. Including St. Joseph, according to some. I mean, let me, let me leave it right there, right? Okay, so the argument is, no, 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 this text is not about purgatory. It's about the limbo of the fathers. Doesn't work. Why? Because the text in Matthew that I just read to you is personal responsibility. Make friends with your accuser. It is something you did that you need to worry about. The limbo of the fathers had nothing to do with personal responsibility. Everybody was waiting to go to heaven. There is no fault there to be accounted for. So the text simply doesn't apply. You can't say it's about the limbo of the fathers because that was a holding place until heaven is open. All right? So, all the justified of the Old Testament waited in the limbo of the fathers regardless of personal guilt. But in this case, those who did not make friends with their brother or did ha have a fault with them would be detained, but the others will go to, to heaven. It can't be, it doesn't apply to the limbo of the fathers for that reason. 
Okay, 1 Corinthians 3, 11, 15. The text, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as though through fire. One objection is, no mention is made of the cleansing of sin. This text speaks of testing of works, which is true. It does speak of testing of works, not sin, works. But what are sins? To, do, to commit a sin, what do you have to do? You have to work. So what is a sin? See, th this is like splitting hair because sin is wicked works. Matthew 7, 21, 23, John 8, 40, Galatians 5, 19, 21. That's what sin is. It's wicked works. So th this is splitting hair. Uh, by the way, every one of those objections are the typical objections that you would hear out there, especially in the Protestant circles against purgatory, right? The believers watch their work go through the fire, but they escape it. Okay, you've got to read the text. If the work survives, he will be saved, but only as through fire. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. He will be saved, but only through fire. So who's suffering loss and who's being saved? Not the work, the person who committed the work. Again, just read the text. Verse 13. Each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. This is speaking of the day of judgment. Yes, it is speaking of the day of judgment. But, let's assume this is talking about the final judgment. It doesn't deny the reality of purgatory. It's simply saying, at the final judgment, guess what? All the sins we haven't confessed are going to be disclosed. That's what the text is saying. Because God's justice demands that justice be known. And so everything will be disclosed. All the sins will be disclosed. Everybody will know everything about everybody else, except for those sins that you actually bother to confess in confession. So, yeah, even if it's the day of the judgment, it doesn't deny the reality of purg purgatory. It doesn't rely on cleansing fire. It doesn't deny any of this. So, again, none of the, there aren't really meaty arguments against purgatory when you look at the text closely. When you consider the scriptures, you consider the tradition of the church, the Jewish tradition, the, the, the reality of purgatory is firmly established. And it's not an invention that we came up with just so we can collect money. All right. Objection. The suffering in purgatory atone for the eternal punishment of sin. No. Purgatory frees us from temporal punishment due to venial sins. Because the objection is, you guys are making the suffering of Christ superfluous. Because now you're atoning for eternal punishment of sin. No. We never said that. Right? Whoever is saying this are not listening to what the church teaches. We're saying purgatory frees us from temporal punishment due to venial sins, not eternal punishment. Purgatory is the final purification of the elect, those for whom eternal punishment has already been remitted by Christ. This does not deny Christ's sacrifice. It presupposes it. Christ paid the price for us. All of us. None of us deserve heaven. He paid the price for us made it possible for us to go to heaven. Some of us go straight, others have more work to do. That's it. Christ's death on the cross makes it unnecessary for Christians 
ever to suffer for their sins. I even heard Catholics say that. Christ died on the cross. That's it. There's nothing for us to do. Well, I'm sorry. The Bible says it ain't so. Hebrew 12, 6, and then 10. The Lord disciplines him whom he loves and chastises, the word actually means lash, whip, flog, scourge, every son whom he receives. He disciplines us for our, for our good that we may share in his holiness. More importantly, Colossians 1.24, Now, St. Paul, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Where do people go and get this idea that, oh, well, Christ suffered on the cross, therefore we don't need to suffer? Read the scriptures, for goodness sake. Last one. Purgatory is bad news in contrast to the good news of salvation. <laughs> All right. I am going to leave that for you as an exercise. If you have questions about that, we can talk about it during the Q&A. But you should be able to figure this one out. All right. Now, I'm going to go back to how to avoid hell and purgatory and gain heaven in a few easy steps. Yep. Because this is what we really, to me, this is the thing that matters the most. How, what do I have to do to get to heaven? Right? So, um, I do recommend if you have some trouble with this idea, or if you're discouraged, I recommend that you ask the intercession of one of my, well, I have so many favorite saints, I don't even know if the word counts anymore. But anyway, his name is Saint Hardini. H-A-R-D-I-N-I. H-A-R-D-I-N-I. Saint Hardini. How many of you here know about, know about Saint Charbel? Just uh, raise your hand. Okay, good. Saint Hardini was his teacher. But unlike St. Charbel, St. Hardini in his life didn't do anything extraordinary. He followed the rule of the monastery. He wasn't a hermit. He didn't fast in extraordinary ways. He didn't lash himself. He followed the rules of the monastery perfectly. And his motto has always been, the wise person saves their soul. So the very first thing you need to do if you want to go to heaven, focus on yourself. Yourself first. And how do you focus on yourself? Well, you're going to start with a daily examination of conscience. And then next week, um, I'm going to talk to Father, and so hopefully we'll get you one. A daily examination of conscience. You can follow it and then learn to interrogate your conscience so your conscience becomes more sensitive and awake to the graces of God. Then you're going to ask this question, did I commit a mortal sin? Hopefully, no, but it's possible to commit mortal sins. And if that's the case, you immediately ask God for forgiveness, immediately. And then you're going to go to confession as soon as possible. If you didn't, go to confession regularly. So what is regularly? If you have not been to confession in a long time, let me rephrase. 
if you have not been to confession at least once last year, okay, you are in a state of mortal sin. Go to confession. Start right there. The church requires us to go to confession at least once a year. Typically, during Lent. Go to confession. If you've been to confession once a year, make it twice a year. If you've been to confession twice a year, make it four times. See where I'm going with this? If you're going to confession once a month, go twice a month. Build it up until you can go every week. You want to know? You want, you want God's mercy? Everybody wants God's mercy. It's in the confessional. I absolve you. I absolve you. Not I forgive you. I absolve you. The priest has nothing to forgive you unless you've been insulting him or something. So he's not forgiving you. He's absolving. He's taking them away. How much, how much more mercy do you want? I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. When the priest says these words... God affects that. He forgives your sins and he forgets about them. And then what do you get for penance? Remember penance here, verses up there? The, the priest will say, you know, say three Hail Marys. Like sometimes I feel to argue with them. What do you mean three Hail Marys? It's not enough. You should give me a rosary or something. Because I'm concerned if the priest didn't give me the right punishment, I'm still going to have to kind of pay for it up there. Go to confession. You want God's mercy? It's right there in front of you. It's free. The, and the priest, every priest has heard every single thing you could ever. You, you can't, there's not going to be a priest, at least in my case, I've never had a priest and go, what? How could you do this? This is crazy. Never. The only thing I get from them is this kind of bored, okay, Say your three Hail Marys. I give you up. That's it. They heard it all. You're not going to trust me. And then the beautiful thing about it, you humble yourself before God. You show that you love him. You're humbling yourself. By humbling yourself, you chase away the devil. The devil hates confession. Hates confession. Hates confession. You gain God's mercy. Confession is the tribunal of mercy. The tribunal of mercy. That's what it's called. Go to confession. And then resolve to work on the virtue opposite your sin. And I'm going to show you this in a minute. So remember, it's not just the piety, which is, oh, I went to confession and I said my rosary. That's piety. That's religiousness. That's great. It's not enough. You're going to have to do something. And the first thing you want to do is figure out which of the vices I have and which virtue counters that and how do I work on it? Okay. In order to do that, you choose small, concrete, achievable goals. So you're being very concrete about it. This is how God knows you love Him. And then you pray that God may give you the grace to do His will, to do those things. Then you go to Mass frequently during the week, as much as you can. You execute on your goals and you share with your friends to hold you accountable. There is a, a form of communion here. We are a family. So find somebody who can hold you accountable. 
That will help you. Don't do it by yourself. Okay. And particularly uh, if you're a couple, I cannot, I cannot encourage couples enough to seriously talk about their failings, to disclose it to each other. When you disclose it to each other, you're building a deeper intimacy and you are growing together and you're helping each other. If you're keeping it from each other, if husband and wife never sit down and talk about that stuff, um, God is going to tell you one day, I gave you this man to help you get to heaven. What did you do? I gave you this woman to help you get to heaven. What did you do? That was my mercy to you for 40 years. What did you do? Okay. Now, I'm going to very quickly go through this. I wanted to do this before. I wasn't able to, so I have no idea how long I've been talking. Oh, perfect. I'm on time then. Wow. Thanks, honey. All right. I divided this into two parts, the virtues and the vices. But on, up, up top, I'm showing you this. What must I do to gain eternal life? That's what the rich man asked Jesus. Well, Jesus said there are two commandments that summarizes the entire law. Love of God, love of neighbor. Okay, what does it mean to love God? Well, you have to know God. You can't love what you don't know. Yes? You have then to love Him. So knowing God is faith. Right? Faith is supernatural knowledge. Faith is not an act of the will. It's knowledge. You love Him, that's charity. And you believe in His promises, that's hope. You might feel terrible about yourself. You might feel ashamed. You might think that, you, you might feel that nobody loves you. Okay, fine. Those feelings are like the wind that buffets a boat. It's wind, it's clouds, it will pass away. They don't stand scrutiny in front of the promises of Christ. That's what you believe in, and that's his hope. That's what you're going to do. And then you're going to love your neighbor. Well, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Well, guess what? You're going to have to know your neighbor. Okay? Particularly if you find somebody who comes at you and they want to argue the faith with you. Let's say they're a Protestant or whatever. They want to just get into the argument. No. Don't fall for this. Step back and ask this person, hey, how was it growing up? Tell me about your childhood. Right? If, if, you're, if you're from the Middle East, you're primed for this because we don't ask, what do you do? We ask, what do we ask when we meet somebody? Where are you from? Why do you think we ask that? Because it's built to incite charity. Where are you from? You're from this village. What do we do next? Once we know where the person is from. What's your family? And then the third step? No, no, no. Before what do you do? We know what family they're from. What are we going to do next? How can we find a way to make each other relatives? 
Oh, so you're from this village. Do you know so-and-so? Ah, yeah. She's the grandmother of the aunt, of the brother-in-law, of the sister, of the husband, of my cousin. Oh, we're family. Americans, it's short-circuit. They have no clue what I'm talking about. No clue. Until they experience that firsthand. That's why names are so important to us. Wait a minute. Do you know so-and-so? What are we doing? We're creating connection. Why are connections important? Because that's how you establish true charity. You know the person. That's what you need to do first. Know the person. Don't, you know, hide behind your side and the, he's hiding behind his side and now you're playing naval battle using verses from Scripture. That, that gets you nowhere. So know the person, love him. What does it mean to love somebody you, you met? How could you love somebody you met? You just came to know him. How can you love him? You care, you help. What do you call those things? Respect, yeah. But what do you call care and help? Sacrifice. You offer sacrifice. That's it. And then... You believe in his promises. You trust that person, even if you're going to get hurt. Ah, that's not that easy. That is not easy anymore. Now the lawyers are going to stand up. But you see, everything I said is built on virtues. If the virtues aren't being growing inside of you, how can you do all this? You can't. So, let me just go quickly through the virtues and the vices. Those are my definitions. I kept them really simple. You can find far more detailed and uh, scholarly ones, but hopefully this will help you somehow. The virtue of humility. What is humility? Humility is to know myself as I am before God. The virtue of humility is related to truth. There is false humility. You make a cake Right? Or you make Namura. And it's wonderful. And somebody comes and says, that cake was amazing. False humility. Oh, no, it's nothing. <laughs> what do you mean it's nothing? You just insulted me to my face. Am I, am I complimenting you on nothing? That's false humility. True humility. Yes, the cake is amazing. And thanks be to God. How do we know that that's really humility? The Magnificat of Our Lady. Behold, every generation shall call me blessed. Was she being pompous when she said that? No. She was stating the truth. So the virtue of humility is related to truth. Pride. To believe. Pride. To believe I am good when I'm evil. That's why we all, we all suffer from the virtue, the, the vice of pride. Okay? In a nutshell, that's what pride is. To think of myself more than I am really. So what does it mean to think of myself more? I am I'm good when I should be thinking I'm evil. How do we know that? St. Luke, Gospel. For you who are evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more your Father in Heaven will know what to give you. For you who are evil, 
All right. Prudence. To do what is just and good without delay. That's what prudence is. To do what is just and good without delay. Prudence is not sit down and think about it for three years and then maybe decide to do something. It's to do what is just and good without delay. The prudent man is quick. The prudent woman is fast. But they're always doing what is just and good. It, mean, it means they're thinking, they're studying, they're learning. Sloth. To neglect what is just and good for personal comfort. Hey, honey, could you go do the dishes? Yeah, I'll get to it. Sloth. Prudence. Can you go do the dishes? Immediately. Immediately. No one was more prudent than St. Joseph. Right? And yet, immediately. A second form of vice against prudence is pusillanimity which is to neglect what is just or good out of excessive analysis. It's not, you're not slothful, you just want to analyze and overanalyze and think about it and overthink it. All right. Courage, the willingness to face suffering and loss while doing what is just and good. Cowardice, to neglect what is just and good, to avoid pain or loss. Fortitude, different from courage. The strength to bear with long-term suffering or loss while doing what is just and good. Courage makes you get up and take action. Fortitude gets you to keep doing it, even if it's hard. You don't give up. Discouragement, abandoning what is God, what is good and just when faced with long-term pain and loss. Those are hard virtues to acquire, but they're really good to work on. All right, justice, the ability to give each person their due. That's what justice is, simple, direct. You give to each person their due. Transgression, the imposition of a personal code of justice on others. Chastity, the forming of the sexual appetite in conformity of right reason. Listen carefully. Chastity is about the forming of the sexual appetite in conformity with right reason. What does that mean? Let's talk about um, temperance, actually, because it is, um, it is related um, and it's a little easier to explain. Temperance, I could have said also the forming of the um, hunger, which is an appetite, in conformity of right reason. What does that mean? It means you eat the right food to sustain yourself and gain energy, and you remain temperate. In particular, you don't eat when you're not hungry. And you're not using food as an end in itself, which is pleasure. You're using it for its proper end, which is to give you sustenance. Likewise, in 
in, um, in the sexual act, the purpose of the sexual act, which is good, so sex is good. Actually, sex is not just good. Sex is holy. Okay? The purpose of the sexual act is to take a man and a woman and unite them together in love, in the bond of marriage, and to allow them to be fruitful. That is its end. And then chastity, the virtue of chastity, allows us to form that sexual appetite for that end. It's not about restrictions and forbidding things. It's about doing what is right. And so there's joy in all the virtues because you're doing what is right and good, which is therefore pleasing to God. Lust, the deformation of the sexual appetite to serve a disordered love of self. Lust is about using others for my pleasure. That's it. Forget about the end. Uh, certainly, I don't want to hear about the end of the sexual act, which is unitive, and certainly not, right? Procreative. Kids are a curse. Avoid as a plague, because all I want is to have my fun. That's a vice. It's not a virtue. It's not a good thing. It's not going to make you happy. It's going to make you miserable. Profoundly so. Okay. Um, modesty. An ordered conception of clothing to serve beauty and protect innocence. An ordered conception of clothing to serve beauty and protect innocence. I'm going to move away from this because I can stay here for a long time, <laughs> as my girls know. Indecency, a disordered conception of clothing that discloses the intimacy of the body for self-serving gain. Okay? For self-serving gain. One exposes their body so that they can be seen for their, exactly, for their own gain. Temperance, the use of food for its intended end, gluttony, the misappropriation of food for selfish satisfaction. Research, the pursuit of the truth for a greater understanding and glory of God. That's what research should be. Curiosity is a vice, not a virtue. Although I have to temper that because the world tends to use curiosity sometimes instead of research or knowledge or understanding. So, but fundamentally, precisely, curiosity is a vice because it is the pursuit of the truth for personal gratification. So I'll give you an example. I'm reading the Wall Street Journal and I got on this article where this person slaps this other person. And I'm sure the reason why you're laughing is because you have no idea what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> this person slaps this other person. Okay. 
So, at this point in time, I have to ask myself this question. Reading this article would lead me to the truth of the event. In and of itself, there is nothing wrong. Is that helping me? Am I doing it for the greater glory of God? Or am I doing it because... That's it. Right there. Curiosity, gossip. Right? There are people who are going to be hanging by their tongues in purgatory for a thousand years over gossip. What are you doing? Why are you saying something? What is the purpose? If you're not doing it for charity, if you're not doing it for the good of your neighbor, if you're not doing it to help build somebody up, if you're not doing it to bring people together, why are you saying what you're saying? Okay. Wisdom. The conforming of one's mind to that of God. One of the greatest virtue anyone could hope to attain. Wisdom. Folly. Bragging rights. The conforming of one's mind to one's fantasies. And I'll give you an example that happened to me three days ago. I'm coming back from Mass, and I'm very tired, so therefore I'm crabby. And I'm allowing myself to be crabby. And in my car, I'm driving on a street, and I get to the intersection of another street. If I could turn right, it would get me closer home. But that other street is one way. So in my fantasy, I'm saying to myself, bragging, hey, I'm just going to turn right. And if the other cars coming this way are not happy, well, that's their problem. That's my fantasy. There is a car ahead of me. We get to the light. And here is this one-way street. And a gentleman in front of me turns right. Suddenly, my fantasy came crashing down. And I went from my little smirk on my face to... Eh? Eh? Hey! And I started honking like crazy. Reality was not as fun as my fantasy at all. That's what bragging right. It's a form of folly where I confuse my fantasy with reality. Okay. Understanding, internalizing truth through a mental framework that explains the why of things. Understanding is hard. It requires a good representation of what the truth should be like so I can absorb it. It's not easy. And it requires a lot of prudence and a lot of wisdom and research. Poor judgment. Either a form of intellectual slothfulness or intellectual pride. In either case, it is the inability to establish the real purpose of things. And oh, are we so good about it in this day and age. I can't, I, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I'm reading an article, let's say, on what is going on in Ukraine. And there is comments, there's a thousand comments or more on the Wall Street Journal. I click on the comments 
and they're talking about Trump and Biden. And the assertions, I mean, they're dogmatic. Everybody knows the truth inside and out, and they f found it in three seconds. What are we doing? Poor judgment. And finally, knowledge. The gathering and ordering of facts that lead to the truth. Hard work. Very exacting. Takes patience and doesn't happen in a second. Ignorance. The inability to grasp the true and beautiful purpose of things, people, and event. Okay. Now, I'm writing, I'm, I read all those things to you so that, and like uh, my daughter said, on, um, um, if you're not subscribing to the newsletter on Corbono, please do so, because I communicate everything through that newsletter. I will be sending a link to these talks, and then I am including these, the decks that you're seeing here, and the talks you have access to them. You can use this list, you can use your own list. There are really great lists out there on virtues and vices. Just don't neglect it. Find one or two. Don't go and say, oh, okay, I'm going to work on every one of those, and by the end of the year, I mastered them. <laughs> okay? If you say that, you're a fool. It doesn't work that way. Just pick one or two, and then establish very concrete goals. For instance, you're curious, right? You hear about somebody wearing a red hat, you have to read about it. That's how you are. Okay. You're not going to go from reading all that stuff to not reading it at all in one day. Maybe you say to yourself, okay, I'm only allow myself to read that stuff for one hour a day. See, that's a concrete goal. You work on that. You pray God to help you achieve that. And then you grow from there. So watch. If, if, if you really want to take God seriously, you've got to sit down and do a little bit of work. And maybe do it with a friend or husband or wife and then bounce ideas or talk to your priest. Get some spiritual direction. Help you figure out what, is, what makes sense, what is practical. And work on that stuff. That's the idea. Okay. So, sweetheart, you want to uh, proceed with Q&A? Uh, what do you want to do? Father Tufi, Father Tufi, could you help us with the prayer, please? Hey, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord, we thank you for all your graces. We thank you for all, all your love. We thank you for Naji and all his work and uh, what you gave him in this life. We thank you for his family and everything they do for the church. We thank you for, for uh, our church, our community, and everyone here this evening. May God give us wisdom, uh, joy, uh, happiness in this life. May God remind us every day that everything is going, everything is uh, dust. The only thing in our life is our love and our relationship with our Lord Jesus. 
For this we pray the prayer that he taught us, our Father. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you, Father. All right. Yes. I'm sorry. Could you raise, raise? Could you repeat your question? Sorry. Oh, yes, 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 sorry, yes. Correct. Purgatory is a direct consequence of the mercy of Jesus Christ. So before purgatory, before Christ, there was no purgatory, as far as we, can, we know, right? I mean, the Maccabees would argue that there was, but I don't have a work, worked up um, theology around that. What we know is that with, the, with Christ dying on the cross, he opens up the gates of heaven for us. And then purgatory is truly a result of God's mercy. Because the people who are in purgatory are there by the pure mercy of God. The people who were in the limbo of the fathers were saints who could not go to heaven because the gates were closed. So it's a completely different category. Have I answered your question? Okay. Yes. Ah, thank you for bringing up indulgences. Let's talk about that. One great way for us to avoid purgatory is called indulgences. What an indulgence is, is the ability of the church to take from the treasury of grace that is in the church and give it to the faithful so that that indulgence will pay the price for the punishment due to sin. The indulgence is not forgiving the sin. You're, you're hearing what I'm saying? The purpose of the indulgence is not to forgive the sin. The purpose of the indulgence is to take away the punishment due to sin. Translation, to avoid purgatory. An example? So, for instance, one of the greatest indulgences that I would recommend you all prepare for is coming up. It is the Feast of Divine Mercy. It is one of the greatest. It is almost like a second baptism. This is how powerful this indulgence is. So, on, the, on Holy Friday... We start a novena of divine mercy, and it ends on the second Sunday, on the Sunday after Easter. Okay? 
The Sunday after Easter has been declared by St. John Paul II, Divine Mercy Sunday. So if you go to confession, you pray for the intention of the Holy Father, you say the novena, and you're truly contrite for your sins, all the punishment, all the temporal punishment due to sin goes away. That's one indulgence. One. Saying the rosary in front of the um, exposed, um, of the, of the, um, in adoration. There's indulgences associated for this. Okay? So, look it up. Look up indulgences. There are so many. When you see how many there are, you can see how Christ is leaving no stone unturned to help us get to heaven. We just have to make a little bit of effort to get to it. You will be doing it at the same time. Yes. But yeah, repentance. Thank you for bringing this up. The indulgence is not going to work if you don't go to confession. Why? Because indulgence is not about the remission of sin. Yeah? It's about the temporal punishment due to sin, which means you have to have your sin forgiven. That's not what an indulgence is. It's the other way around. You, you're coming as a, as a beggar. Yeah. Exactly. You're coming as a beggar, and then you're asking the church, the church, it's the treasury of the church, to pay for you. And the church, because she's a mother, gladly does so. All right? Another question? Yes. With the, uh, can you explain what happened with the Orthodox Church and why they removed purgatory? You said at some point they did, but at some point they didn't. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I know that around the time of the Reformation, they replaced purgatory with another limbo of the fathers. The idea is all the, all the just would be waiting until the final judgment in order to get to heaven. But the problem, as you know, there isn't a unified body of teaching among Orthodox. There isn't one canon or one set of belief. They share a lot amongst each other, but not completely. And then some of the arguments are confusing. And frankly, I don't really do much in terms of um, apologetics, so that's why I stay away from it. It's just that they don't, they just stop believing in Purgatory. You can see I quoted from St. John Chrysostom, which is a revered saint among the Orthodox. And he's teaching about um, confession, and I, I mean um, uh, purgatory. I don't know why they did that. Yeah, I don't have a really good answer for you because I do, I do, I, it's not really my focus, to be honest. So I didn't really look into it. Yeah. Yes. So Hades, why is Hades referring to purgatory? So Hades generally represents essentially the abode of the dead. That's a general t term. It covers both hell, it covers the abode of the, uh, the, 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 uh, the um, um, limbo of the fathers, it covered the limbo of the, of the infants, and purgatory. 
But sometimes, dependent on what is being meant, it could refer to purgatory, right? So um, th th that's why. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, is purgatory on earth? Absolution. Okay. This is this is the priest where I go and confess. Okay. Since I was young. Yeah. That's my word. Mm -hmm. And then I feel sorry for my sin. Will God wait for me until I die? Only God knows. Now I'm 64. Will He wait for me until I die to pay, or I'm paying from now? Already I feel guilty that I did this. And I try to yep. have so, afraid of myself. And good. Is that purgatory? No. Well, yes, yes, it is. You're, okay, so the question is, you, you've, you are sorry for your sins. You went to confession. You confessed your sins. The priest gave you absolution. That's the forgiveness. And then he gave you a penance. That penance is what you're paying for. That's it. I know. Because when I, I, I know. Hold, hold on. Hold on. I, I know. But my point is precisely the priest gave you that penance to do. You do the penance. So it's over. That's it. So Isn't that amazing? amazing? Provided, you see, provided that you have perfect contrition. That's the thing. Meaning you are sorry for your sins out of love of God, not because you're afraid of going to hell. So there is some complexity there. But nevertheless, you confess your sins. You get, a, you get your, your penance, you do your penance, move on. And then to your point, to show that you are true repentant, you work on your virtues and on the love of the people around you. That's it. Do that and don't worry about the rest. I can focus on heaven and not think of Everybody should be focusing on heaven. That's the whole purpose. That's our hope. We want to go to heaven. I want to get that out That's of heaven. it. I don't want to get to exactly. Exactly. Yes. Oh, the gentleman in the back. Where's the gentleman in the back? Um, so we talked about purgatory is preparation for forgiven sins. Obviously, unforgiven mortal sin, you go to hell. Unforgiven venial sin, still go to purgatory for that. Um, okay, so unforgiven venial sins are usually forgiven either when you go to Mass. Right? If you go to Mass and you specifically ask, so when you walk into the church and you bless yourself with the holy water, if you ask God with sorrow in your heart to forgive your venial sins, they're forgiven. Okay? You don't need to go to confession for venial sins. You only need to go to confession for moral sins. But like I said earlier, there's a second objective of confession. It isn't just the forgiveness of sins. It is the strengthening of your intent, your humility, and your love of God, and the reception of graces to help you lead, to help you avoid sins. That's why it is such a beautiful gift. 
but you don't need to go to confession for venial sins. It's enough to ask for God to forgive you when you bless yourself or before you receive the Holy Eucharist. The Eucharist will forgive venial sins. The Eucharist does not immediately forgive mortal sins. The Eucharist can immediately, not immediately, help us forgive sins because it strengthens our resolve to go to confession. Okay? Have I answered your question? Okay, you're welcome. Yes, please, Father. Thank you, Father. For example, some person was stealing uh, Malaysian uh, uh, towels. towels from every hotel he went to. <laughs> <laughs> for 20 years. Wow. And that person came for confession. How are you going to do this? Three amazed, that I'm not going to do it. Right. So we, we gave him, you know, something else. Yeah. We had to work on it actually for yeah. some time. Yeah. So if you're spinning towels, come to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So Father has, a, has made a really good point about confession. Our Lord gave power to forgive and retain sins. So if you're not, you're not repentant, your sins can be retained. Because what you bring to confession, the matter that you bring to confession is your repentance. Not your sins, your repentance. And the form is, I, can, I absolve your name, the Father, Son, but you have to have the matter, which is you're repentant. So that's why it's possible for a priest to retain your sins. Yes? Okay, so the, let's say we know somebody and they passed away. And yes. We for them, but we don't know if they went to purgatory, hell, or heaven. Right. If they're in purgatory, that means um, our prayers are helping them. How about they're in hell? What happens to our prayers towards them? So if the person is in hell, your prayers will go to someone else. If the person is in heaven, your prayers will go to someone else. Prayers will never be lost. That's God's mercy. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so you have a venial sin, you go to confession, you confess it, you get absolved, you get a penance. Do you still have 
So fundamentally, if you say if you say your see you see the beauty of confession, and, and I should have said that earlier, as you go to confession, confession is almost like this water that is dripping on this hardened heart, on this hardened rock, and eventually the water will pierce through. That rock is our heart. So the mercy of God keeps on going down and eventually breaks our heart. What does it mean to repent? It means you are sorry for your sins because they offended or they wounded Jesus. That is the perfect contrition. If you have perfect contrition and you went to confession, confessed your sins, did your penance, you're going to heaven. And you died that moment, you're going to heaven. Perfect contrition affects the removal of all temporal punishment due to sin. So even if you are walking in and you're just blessing yourself with holy water, you didn't go to confession for those being your sins, as long as you have perfect contrition. Right. The problem with, with perfect contrition is it's a gift from God. We cannot, I can't manufacture contrition. God has to give it to me. And God is not going to give it to me if I'm just a lazy bum. Hence, are you working on your virtues? Are you going to confession? Are you applying yourself? So that God can see you're really serious about Him. That's about it. Yes. I kind of want to follow up to that. Two weeks ago, you mentioned the story of a gentleman who on his deathbed received Holy Communion, confirmation, and his first confession at the same time. Yeah. You said he went straight to heaven. Right. But that's because, you're right, uh, great question. That is because of the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. That's the power of that sacrament. Like I said, when you start looking at everything that God has gave us, has given us, you go, it's too much. We, we won't have any excuse to say, oh, you didn't think about it, oh, you didn't give. No, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, that, that, it's the power of the sacrament that made that happen. Yes, Johnny. How does fasting fit into penance? Oh, fasting, if the priest gives you as a penance to fast, you fast. Fasting is not penance for your sins. Well, I mean, it's not penance. Okay, it is not a penance if the priest hasn't given it to you. However, if you are sorry for your sins, you want to make reparations. And one way to make reparations is to detach yourself from certain things in order to better love God. That's the key. Like if you are fasting, if you are fasting from sleep, if you are doing something that is painful and you stop there, it's not as useful as you might think. you got to say, I'm doing it so that I can replace it with the love that I have for God. Right? So you, you don't eat so you can love God more. Right? You don't watch TV so you love God more. Otherwise, you fall in a form of what we call negative morality, it, religion becomes this list of the things you're not supposed to do. And that is not only tedious, but it is depressing. Right? Morality isn't about don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. It's just like a bunch of don'ts, and then who is going to be happy with this? Morality is don't do this, love Jesus. Don't do this, love Jesus. Don't do this, love Jesus. Don't do love Jesus. Love God. Know His joy. Know His mercy. Know His... That's what you need to mostly focus on. It's that bit. But so fasting is a great way for us to sort of, you know, open up our hearts so that we can, we can actively love God more. It is mortification, exactly. 
there's a harmony between you know your penance because penance also is mortification. Well, yeah, depending on the penance that they give you. If it's three Hail Marys, it's hardly a mortification, right? So it depends what they give you as a penance, but you would assume that the penance would be bigger, right? But mortification is your own self-imposed discipline to grow in virtues and in love of God. That's what the whole purpose of it. And then the church gives us a season to help us do this, which is Lent. Yes. Well, what I'm saying is that if you're only going to fast to, let's say, lose weight, or fast because you're asked to fast, you're doing it as a duty, it's a good thing. It's not a, it's not a sin. It's a good thing. Whether you're losing weight or you're doing it as a duty, you're learning something. That's good. But the greater thing is, Lord, I am giving up these things because I want more of you. You see? Not, I'm just giving up these things because, hey, it's Lent and I have to pick something. What do you mean more of you? Hmm? What do you mean more of you? Help me love you more. Very few of us actually have a true, deep, abiding devotion to the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, you're fasting so you can love the Holy Spirit more. So you can get to know God, the Holy Spirit, as a personal God and presence in your life. You want more of God, less of this world. But if you're only going to do is less of this world, well, that's kind of depressing because there's nothing that comes and replaces it. Right? Make sense? Okay. Yes. by St. Charles-Borromée Church, because this is the church, this is the school I grew in. So I'm very attached to St. Charles-Borromée and his history. And the priest said something beautiful. He said, many people come to church uh, by, uh, by homework. They come to church because they want to do homework. I want to come to church. If you don't come, he said, by word, if you don't come to church to meet Jesus, and those who follow Jesus, it is exactly like going to an idolatry pilgrimage. I was shocked because I could not imagine that sometimes I used to come to church just by fear not coming to church, going to church. I go to church because I'm used to, or I'm afraid people would say, Laura didn't go there, but do I really, am I really trained by the Holy Spirit <coughs> as Pope St. Jean Paul II said in the early 70s, we have to revive the Holy Spirit in us. And this is what kills me. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so you, you make a really good point, which is what we're trying to reiterate, and that is you want to love God. Everything we do is to love God, to grow in God, love of God, love of neighbor. So don't lose sight of that as you do everything else. And it's not an emotion, it's not a feeling, it's an action. It's an action. You know, you're, you're, let's say you're a kid at home, you're living with your parents, in the morning, get up, do your bed, don't wait for your mother to tell you. That's an act of love. Go to the kitchen, there are dishes in the sink, wash them. That's an act of love. 
There's something that is on the floor, pick it up. The light is on, turn it off. They're all acts of love. That's what matters. This is how we, and they're not great by themselves. They're just a signpost to tell Jesus, I want to love you. That's it. Mark. a sin and can you still end up there even if you don't really believe in it and also to an ex uh, extension on that question the denial of the existence of hell of hell are people no that people don't go to hell like because we're good yes people yes yeah Okay, so great questions mark the first question is the denial of the existence of purgatory anything that the church declares as a dogma when you deny it now, maybe you're denying it of the ignorance, but then you're basically willing to be a Catholic who is ignorant of what you're supposed to believe in, and that is a problem, right? Um, if you deny a dogma of the Catholic Church, one dogma, you've basically denied your entire faith. Because what is faith? Faith is an act of intelligence to say, I know God and I want to be part of the family. You're either part of the family or you're not. There's nothing in between. Right? So to answer your question, anybody who denies purgatory, maybe they're doing it as an act of ignorance because they don't know what the church teaches and they have to work on that. But if they do and deny it, they are basically rejecting the faith wholesale. To your next question, the idea that everybody goes to heaven and nobody goes to hell is a heresy, because it denies the words of our Lord himself, right? Wide and easy is the path that leads to perdition, and many, many take it. Narrow and hard is the path that leads to salvation, and very few find it. Those are the words straight out of the mouth of our Lord. So again, it's, a, it's an ignorance of the faith, an ignorance of the teaching of the church. It's a serious matter. Let's just put it this way. I don't want to speak of mortal or venial. I don't know the people. But it's a definitely serious matter. And they are in jeopardy of being lost when they say that. One last question. Yes. Is my sin more grave because I knew the sin already? Is your sin more grave when you know? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Because what is faith? Faith is a faculty of reason. It's a supernatural faculty of reason. It's all about knowledge. Um, in fact, I'll tell you this kind of really funny story. I used to take a bunch of guys up to Peter Sham to the Marinette Monks of the Adoration for a retreat. I did that a number of times. And whenever we would show there and when I start the study, I'd have some of the guys who would tell me, I would get to, close to a topic, I'll give an example. I would remind everybody back then as it is today, if you're voting Democrat, you are committing a mortal sin, period. Cannot support abortion, ever. And many of the guys, traditionally, voting Democrat. So I would start telling them this and the reaction is, Stop, stop, I don't want to know, I don't want to know. Because they knew, if they knew, 
then you're going to be responsible for it. And I'm trying to sort of ignore it by kind of hiding behind the wall, right? Um, yeah, but what is Jesus Christ? He is our hope. He is the truth. He's the way. He's our salvation. So how can I be a Catholic not willing to know him and trust him that will give me all the graces I need to be able to live a life that will lead me to heaven? So when we say, oh, wait a minute, uh, knowledge is a problem, we're basically saying Christ is a problem because Christ is the truth. Do you see what I'm getting with this? Yeah. So no, he wants us to know, but he's going to give us the graces to live up to that knowledge and do what is right. Make sense? Okay. All right. Thank you for coming out tonight. We will conclude with our last meeting with next, this coming Wednesday, uh, April 6th at 730. Have a wonderful night. Uh, those of you who are able to, we are going to rearrange the tables back into place. It'll be 10 chairs per table and the tables on the sides will come to the middle. So thank you all and have a great rest of your evening. Move the tables and chairs. Please carry them. Yes, don't drag them. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> Trying to... Recalibrate. No, I'm just trying to shut it down, but oh, it just okay. doesn't want to shut down. Funny. <laughs>